another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. You know what I always enjoy is when The Athletic, uh, a sports website, puts out like a really like in-depth article about the Mets and why their season went wrong. And then at the end, it's just like, don't know, didn't work. It's like, wow, glad we spent all that time re- re- researching it, interviewing everyone to be like, don't know, things just didn't work this year. It's like, goddamn. You know, Josh, not all research comes to a conclusion. Yeah, but I feel like when you're interviewing that many guys, you should at least take a stance to be like, they sign bad people, they, they, you know, they're older, but just like, they were just like, that's the billion dollar question, we don't know. It's, it's a tad aggravating to read it all and then come to that. Mm, that's understandable. Um, folks, this is not the Mets podcast, just no. as a little precursor right there. Um, this is the Road Dogs podcast, and we will be discussing uh, movies today as we mm. do every week, but in a little bit of a different capacity. Um, last week we did something kind of fun, which Josh and I both enjoy. We switch things up and we don't just pick one movie, maybe we pick a couple, um, or we kind of do like a niche thing, like the Criterion episode, where it's like, hey, we'd really like to see these movies restored. Um, but we're going to be greedy again <laughs> and talk wow. about films we love this week. Yeah. Um, but the parameters this week are a bit different, though, and that's that there are none. This is just going to be a week where we talk about movies that stuck with us so far this year. It could be a streamer from 2018 or a weird B-movie from 1964. It doesn't matter, just as long as you saw it for the first time this year. So I think without further ado, let's talk about some movies, dog. Yeah, this is just like discoveries. Like I feel like my favorite thing about our show is that we'll go anywhere in terms of like genre or timeline. But sometimes we don't talk about what we've currently watched to be like, hey, watch this one. Pretty good. So it's nice to mm-hmm. you know kind of take a break and do some of that. You want to lead off? Do you want me to lead off? You know what josh why don't you lead us off okay uh, for the for the first time i watched days confused this year uh richard linklater's days confused uh with jason london joey warren adams uh sean andrews matthew mcconaughey uh i i had always wanted to see it because it's one of those like cult classic movies that i feel like everyone should see you know like i, I assume you've seen it oh yeah countless times yeah so i was like all right let's finally get to it mainly because we did an episode on everybody wants some this year and by we, I mean friend of the show, Tanner and I talked about that, talked about Linklater. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go back to the start. Like, let's figure this all out. Because, of course, if you know everybody wants them, it's kind of a spiritual sequel to Days and Confused. So I went back and I watched it. And um, it's good. You know, like, I, I don't know. Like, sometimes I have this thing where I watch an iconic movie. And maybe I, I feel the way of, like, I've seen so much of what this inspired that going back to the Genesis doesn't hit as hard as it was. Um, and I kind of felt that way with Days of Confused, where I like a lot of the aspects of it. You know, it's got a great heart. It's got a really fun personality. It's got a lot of interesting themes and a lot of, like, solid performances from unknowns and then, like, oddball performances from people we now know. I mean, McConaughey is just, like, just ripping it. For the <laughs> five minutes he's in there. Yeah, Fred O'Banion. He's like, scary in that movie. He is. Like, we've. oh, that's a good point. We've never gotten, like, Psychopath. Maybe, like, Deep Waters? Yeah, that's more, like, erotic. Yeah, I want like kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't want like crazy fucking Affleck. Cause like he he does have that weird thing though. You're right. Cause in Mallrats, he's also very unhinged. So he was originally typecast, just like tall, brute, fucking jock, and now they've just gone away. And he's like, that's but Affleck. Mm-hmm. But anyways, like it's incredibly similar for everybody who wants some. So like I, I'm glad I went and made like corrected that mistake and being like, let's go watch what started this all. But like I, I didn't love it honestly. Really? Um, 
know what? I, I let's just analyze each other right let's now. Do it. The, let's be on the big purple couch. <laughs> Why not? Like, because I think that movie is timeless. I mean, from the soundtrack to the, I, I, I think the thing that might detract people just to throw this point out there is, it's, it's much in the vein of Linklater's aimlessness, mm. which I enjoy. Um, but some people who are more plot oriented get kind of bogged down with that. But I, I think that movie is just absolutely timeless. I think my, my biggest issue with it was that it's just a little too overcrowded in a lot of different ways. There's just a lot of characters they're throwing at you. And I think every character I felt like got equal screen time, which is cool. But when we're doing like the Adam Goldberg nerd characters or like the <laughs> the eighth graders that are not the one kid that's going to go on the baseball team. Even Mitch is pretty, pretty weak. That performance is pretty bad. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, it's just like, Jesus Christ, like another 15 minutes with Adam Goldberg. Be like, oh, God, I don't have a girlfriend. I'm going to be a senior next year. It's just like, oh, man, like all the Pink Floyd stuff I really liked. You know, all that stuff is great. But it just felt like the movie doesn't know who its main character definitively is. And I think that's the biggest issue. And then on top of it, the soundtrack is awesome. I thousand percent agree with you. But it felt like there was a new iconic song every single scene. And like the movie didn't give itself a chance to breathe and like, let's just have this scene be what it is and these characters doing this or whatever. It's just all encompassed by the sound. And like, I, 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 I mean, look, we went to high school. That's kind of the point of high school parties and that whole atmosphere. Like, there's people just playing songs a miles a minute. They don't really care. They're not focused on a tonality or stuff like that. Um, but it just didn't, it felt just too overcrowded for me of like things are, there's just too much going on all at once for us to like walk in on one thing. Interesting. Um, yeah, I really love that movie. I think it's, again, I think it's timeless, but the one thing that I, I kind of keep going back to is that's a great example of a movie that like we talked about last week, aging with your movies. Mm. You know, I watched that movie like right after I got out of high school and it meant something completely different to me than it does now as I'm right almost 30 years old. Ooh, that's scary to say. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that is the strongest part of this movie, definitively. Like, the way it makes you feel and the things that it captures are done so well with such authenticity and such, like, authority and this, like, really interesting investigation of, like, a small town, Texas town, and, like, the, the highs and lows of sports and, like, this is as high as it's ever going to get for these kids in some ways. And, like, Fred O'Banion, great example as we were talking about him. You know, he's an athlete, after he graduates high school, there's nothing left for him, you know? And that sort of exploration, I think is really interesting. And like, it's a really sad way to look at your youth kind of, but also enjoy it for what it was sometimes. Um, Fred O'Bannon is driving an 18 wheeler across the country, eating at shitty diners and smoking cigarettes. I'm not convinced Fred O'Bannon's not dead. Like, I think he might be dead by (laughs) 1990. You know, he just gets into a fist fight at a diner in, like, Austin, Texas, and just gets shit because he was talking shit about, like, North Texas College, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but, like, the, the, there's other, like, weird things that haven't aged so well that I, I'm not, like, going to say we should cancel the movie or anything like that. But just coming back to it, I'm like, ooh, like, that's that's weird. Like, right. the ending of the nerd plot line is that he kisses a 15-year-old who's about to start high school. And it's like, uh, I wonder if Link Lane would want that one back. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. kind of like there's just yucky things sometimes that pop up that I could deal with, but like it, it trying to like in, endear me to the film didn't exactly work. But I, I overall would say like there's enough laughs because this is a really fun, like I think it's more a vibes movie than it is anything else to me. Totally. A lot of the early 
link later stuff is this slacker you know it's just kind of that's how that's how he kind of became a household name mm-hmm. and we talked about this on the the everybody wants some episode but like I think this is about where he starts to mature after this is because we have the before trilogy starting a little bit after that. That's 95, I think. And so this feels like, hey, like I'm making something that really means a lot to me that is feeling like deeply personal. And then it's finally like, all right, let's rough around the edges as we move forward in my career and really like get going in like a real high place. Um, And like, I understand why this is a classic because I think if I was in high school again, and we were all just having fun, and this was on in the background. I, I it'd be a great time. Like I think, <laughs> I think this movie suffers from me watching it by myself because I'm just like, yeah, nerds again, huh? Wow, Fred O'Bannon sure is crazy. There's Cole Hauser. Well, and it's also, it's also become one of those really kind of quotable movies. Whether it's the yeah. All Right, All Right, All Right, or the You Got to Join on You, it'd be a lot cooler if you did. You know, it's it's yeah. it's kind of been exhausted in the pop culture lexicon as well a little bit to the point I think um, it might be due a little bit of reappraisal now because I do think there's probably a lot more people who lean towards the way that you think. And one thing I do love about Linklater is all of his films feel that way. They all feel so very personal, and like there's a piece of him in every single one of them. Um, and that's what I really love about all his films, whether it's Boyhood or this or, you know, Everybody Wants Some. Um, you, you can feel him in his movies. Mm-hmm. It's a unique voice. Like, I, and we talked about this a lot on that episode, too. So if you want to, like, hear an in-depth link later conversation, go back and listen to it. Um, but he's really an artist that I feel just cares a lot about everything he does. Like, there's a there's an interview that he was circulating around around because Hitman, his newest film, got bought by Netflix this week. Shout out. Cannot um, wait to see that. Really excited. Glenn Powell, let's go. We've talked about Glenn Powell on the show. We've done Top Gun. We've done Everybody Wants Some. I think we've just sprinkled him in every now and again and be like, God, I love Glenn <laughs> Powell. He's hot. Um, <laughs> but he talks about how when uh, Apollo 10 and a half, his last film got bought by Netflix, it just kind of dropped without any fanfare. And he felt very personally just saddened by that because he would get texts from people that are his friends and be like, oh, your new movie just dropped, huh? And he was like, yeah, this thing I spent years writing and then conceptualizing and then directing and then everything in post just dropped and now it's just there. So he always has felt like an author to me that is just like deeply involved in everything he does. It takes us all very, very personally and it really translates to a lot of his work because as much as I don't jive with Days Confused, I'd still give it a seven. And then also, I just think like so many of his wow. other movies are just terrific. Like he's a terrifically underrated director that not a lot of people talk about. And just last thing before we kind of probably try to move on from and and get through all of our picks. The other thing, too, that I love about him is he's really trying to stretch the format of telling a story. Boyhood is completely deconstructing how you film a movie. It was shot over, what, the course of like two decades, a Mm -hmm. decade or something like that? And he's doing it again. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So that's really cool. There's there's something... something admirable admirable about like stretching the format and changing it and to to fit your needs so i respect that too and he's doing it in days too is, is the the really interesting thing to me is that the yeah. same things that i have a problem with are also things that i don't think a lot of people would have really wanted to do you know slacker is doing a lot of what days is doing too of like multiple protagonists we're not sticking with one person um and the only difference is i think that slacker moves around Enough that it's like, it's this person's section, it's this person's section, it's this person's section, whereas Days is trying to put them all together and cut between them all, that it just doesn't work for me. But yeah, go watch Days of Confused if you haven't. It's a classic. You can at least tell everyone, like I'm telling Nick now, like, hey, I did watch a classic, so you cannot come at me for watching some <laughs> B-movies again. 
Hmm. No, it's a good pick. And, you know, it's funny that you picked Days and Confused because I have another movie that's a little bit similar in its format. So we'll get to that later. A little teaser. Um, but my first pick is High and Low. This is an Akira Kurosawa film. Somebody that I've spoken at length on this podcast, listened to the Rashomon episode, or, you know, he's been sprinkled throughout this podcast, kind of like Richard Linklater. Um, but this is one of his core masterpieces that I just hadn't gotten around to seeing. Now it's the only one that I own on physical media. I bought the Criterion right after I watched it. So that should say something. Um, and if you're an aspiring filmmaker or you really want to learn the science and like breakdown of character motivation, watch Kurosawa films. His blocking is amazing. Um, this one especially. The way the opening scene plays out at Gondos, who's Toshiro Mifune, who we've talked about, he's in a really great turn here because this takes place, this isn't a Japanese feudal war story. This takes place in post-war Japan. Um, and he is giving a masterclass on how body language tells a story, power dynamics, motivations, morality are all things you can pick up on just simply where Kurosawa places his characters. You know, maybe somebody's sitting on a couch, maybe somebody's hunched over a counter and the other person's pacing back and forth. All those things really, really mean something in a Kurosawa film. Um, it's really poetry in motion for me. And, and that's, I think, his big background being part of the stage world, I think really takes on a strong presence in this one. This movie's visceral, complex, and haunting. Um, this has staples of all of his finest works, but it's always the socio-political stuff for me that works the best with him, and it works even better when it's in like more of a modern time. Uh, the placement of Gondo's elaborate home high above the lower class is not by accident, right? Um, but he does a great service by bringing light and humanity to those impoverished in the post-war Japan setting, which leads to a really humbling but like kind of earned ending for our character. He's not the greatest guy. You know, you really kind of question his moral compass quite a bit. But the second half police procedural of this movie absolutely fucking cooks. I mean, the, the, the scene where they're kind of mapping out the route where the kidnappers took with the money and where the train is and where they might be. It's just 10 out of 10 stuff, which builds up to this really great, tense and engaging moment where they drop off the money. Um, and there's no fighting, there's no shootout, there's no action sequence. It's just literally basing the tension off of, he doesn't drop this money off right here, right now. That kid's going to die. Um, what's the final shot of this movie, Josh? And tell me Reeves didn't get inspired by this for Batman. Um, but we'd have to devote another podcast to the litany of people Kurosawa influenced. So this is from what you're telling me, like an actual like detective story. Cause I, that's interesting. Cause Kira Kurosawa, I mean, I don't know his filmography as well as you do. But everything, I feel like, is pretty much period pieces for the most part. You're not wrong. It, it's really strong. It's really rich with period pieces. But this is one of the few that takes place in uh, modern times. So it's about a rich shoe shoe executive. Um, and he's kind of gets caught up in the scheme where his son is going to be kidnapped. But the kidnapper snatched the wrong person. Mm. Take his chauffeur's son. So he then has to go through this moral like conundrum of should he still give him the money even though it isn't his son? Um, which is really kind of complex because you think they would be a no-brainer, but they really, really allow you to like go through all of the emotions and all the processes with him. You know, of the like, it's why it's called high and low. Really, you know, you can also societal reasons, but you can really tell. There's a part where he starts off really staunch and like he's like, "I'm this is a stupid idea. I don't want anything to do with this." And then he really kind of switches, and it's like an earned ending. It doesn't feel forced onto the audience. It's something that I really liked, and it's really great too. It's like. Shiro Mifune, who we've talked about, very loud, very boisterous, you know, of the times, and that's kind of how uh, the samurai films were portrayed. Subtle, quiet, mm. contemplative in this. It's very much internal performance, which I really enjoyed as well. So do you think this is a movie that, like, modern... So I guess the, the thing that I would say, 
is that I like, you know, Yojimbo, Rashomon, stuff like that, but I've always had a hard time, like, going more into the Kurosawa filmography, because a lot of it is that style, and that style for me has always been, like, a bit too hammy, and I understand those were the times, so I don't fault Kurosawa for his direction in that approach. Do you think more modern audiences would be, like, more interested in, like, more in-depth, like, I can't fucking speak today, <laughs> more invested in a movie like High and Love than they would be a lot of his other movies? I think the stakes are much higher. I think it's the highest the stakes have ever been. I think the characters are much more relatable because they take place in takes place in a modern time. I also think, again, what I think is really the best part of this movie, and a lot of Kurosawa's work always works best, is the social commentary of like working class versus the shoe executive or the drug addicts versus the chauffeur. You know, there's a very do this great job of like almost drawing a line between the two societies, and I I think those to me are the themes that live on forever. Right. You know, I mean, Ransom is a good movie, but it's basically high and low. You know what I mean? It's got the same <laughs> kind of plies. A kid gets kidnapped. Bill Gibson has to get him back. It's not a very complex plot. It's the things that it's saying in the subtext and the things that are underneath the surface that make you think and kind of want to go back to it. Is this your new favorite Kurosawa movie, Nick? I'm going to throw out the big gun here. I feel like I might get assassinated if I put it at number one over Seven Samurai. Like, I feel like someone's just going to come through the window and just take me out. It's just like sacrilegious kind of to put it above it. For my money, I, I'm 10 times more entertained. Not 10 times, but I'm, I'm much more entertained by High and Low than I am Seven Samurai. I feel like I'm going to feel the same because now I want to go watch. You know, like, look, we know me. You say procedural crime. I'm there. So, like, I think I have to go watch High and Low now before the year's out and then, you know, maybe come yep. back to this. But, I, yeah, this seems more like my type of jam. And I'm going to be like, you know, Curious Roman's best movie is actually High and Low. And then, like, me and you will be <laughs> uh, put on blast on Reddit by their, you know, 12 listeners, maybe. Yeah, there you go. We need a Reddit. <laughs> we don't need a Reddit community, but, like. <laughs> no, we sure don't, pal. We sh I think Instagram is more than okay. We can send out our silly little pictures and then be like, Boom. Done. New episode. There you go. Watch the movies. Watch the movie. Okay. I will watch High and Low. My next pick, uh, you know, Nick rags on me, like I said, for not watching enough classics. And so that's why I put Daisy Confused in another movie on this list. Because I, you know, honestly, I, I watch and waste my time on a lot of dreadful films. You know, I've seen every Saw movie, seen every Hellraiser movie, uh, but I've neglected like large swaths of like any top 100 list. And that's the caveat of that, right? Yeah. And like, I would like to clarify so I don't sound like a damn monster. No, you're here. not a snob, but I do, I do understand. This is my thing. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with hanging out with your friends and watching every single yeah. Saw movie under the sun. You should also watch really good movies like Apocalypse Now and High and Low. Like, you got to balance out the steak with the candy, right? Or the yeah. vegetables with the with the fast food. <laughs> Well, that's why we that's why we started with Days Confused because like when I sure. okay so when I when we were starting like formulating this episode I put like my four picks be like hey Nick this is what I'll probably be talking about and you're like is that all and I was like uh yeah and then I was like I don't think he's happy about this these are a lot of like indie like movies he doesn't know about so I went back to my letterbox. I was like, I didn't watch Daisy Confused. And then the second I wrote that into the document, his cursor was like, you watched Daisy Confused this year? And I was like, yeah, Nick, yeah, Nick, yeah, I did, I did, I did. Well, love me, love me, I'm good, I'm good. I ate some steak this year. And um, some treats. So that's why my first pick was like, Daisy Confused. And be like, all right, Nick, things are going to be a little different here. So let's just, let's just start out there. 
Hey, you know what? You're 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 great. You're killing it. You know, yeah. at least you didn't um, false start on a fourth and one like Jordan Love and the Green Bay Packers last. Or week. false start everyone but the center. That wasn't me this week. So so we're good. So let's go back to the realm where I dwell, which is like weird indies with B to C actors that almost no one has heard about. So let's talk about the art of self defense. This is a movie written directed by Riley Stearns. He's a small director. No one really knows. You got Jesse Eisenberg, Imogene Poots, Alessandra Nova. You know Eisenberg. Nova, you'll probably know most from um, The Many Saints of Newark. He plays Dickie Maltesanti. Uh, I remember he's, he's a great actor, and he's just fucking so good in this movie. You know what else he's really good in? He's not in it long, but he's also really good in American Hustle. Mm, mm, I forgot he was in that. He's in like he's done a lot of like just interesting work of like anything. Like I think he's in like one of the Venom movies too. For like all I know, yeah. Just guy gets around. Really interesting guy. I think mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen all of his movies, so I can't say this, but I think this is his most interesting performance I've ever seen. So the basic gist of this movie, for no one who's seen it, you know, everyone is that Jesse Eisenberg is kind of this loser who gets beat up one night as he's just walking home trying to get dog food. And after the beating, he just feels so ashamed and emasculated that he joins a local karate dojo and is like, I'm going to learn to like beat people because <laughs> that's just how he feels. So his time in the dojo is like really fun and like he meets this interesting sensei who is played by Nova. Um, but as he like spends more and more time there and gets more and more invested there, like he starts feeling and seeing these more weird, like criminal things. He's like, that's not like, that's not right. <laughs> you know? And like the environment just gets more and more uber masculine. You know, they're like, Hey, Jesse Eisenberg, you're going to go change to the woman's changing room, but there's no actual woman's changing room. It's just like the boiler room. Cause we don't have that. You know? Gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole movie's about like, Will Eisenberg kind of allow himself to change into the masculine dickhead and like this feeling of like really going from emasculated to now emasculated and everyone else is a consequence? Or will he allow himself to then see past that and try and be a better person or just be a more well rounded person? Um, and this movie is like, it's got such a strong heart. It's a terrific dark comedy with a lot of intrigue about like what just happens to men when they feel threatened. And I feel that's a, a topic that I – I mean, look, there's so many goddamn movies about like bad man doing bad man thing because bad man is insecure about stuff. And I mean that's a lot of like bad people. <laughs> so I understand why we're talking about that. But I think the art of self-defense is exploring this idea of like, man, men are so fragile that when their egos are shattered by a manlier man, what do they do? How do they respond? Like how do you cope? with that and do you try and enact violence on others to regain control and squash those feelings of inferiority and if not violence then shame and bullying and just like really go all out this is weird because i had my hand on this at the library like a week Mm. ago i took it off the shelf i looked at it and i flipped it over it's got the yellow cover with the Mm. red writing i was like i don't know if i want to grab this like and then you put it on the document. Like, there was no conversation about it. It wasn't like, I was like, hey, I almost rented the art of self-defense. Like, yeah. it just was on there. So um, I find that kind of a cool coincidence. To me, I guess my question for you would be, is like, what would you say, because when I picked it up off the shelf, mm-hmm. and I looked at it, I was like, this looks like a comedy. Yeah. Right? But from the way that you're describing it, to me, it sounds like it's much more based in drama. So, like, for the audience, what would you what would you call this, a comedy or a drama? It's definitely a dark comedy. Like... It's very like 
there's not a lot of jokes so much as there's like lines that are like, huh, that's weird. And the way that Nova and then Eisenberg are playing off each other, or Navoa, I'm sorry, I mispronounced his name the whole time. The way they're playing off each other is like this really interesting exploration of like guy who's like imitating the Japanese like style of like, you must do this and you are cool if you do this. And then you have Jesse Eisenberg being Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> so it's this interesting clash that then breeds a lot of comedy that is not supposed to be like gags or like goofy stuff or, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I farted on your face? You know, there's none of that. It's a lot more of just like off kilter, like Jesse Eisenberg and, and Navola playing off of each other in that way. Um so you would say it's not really about the lines in the, in the bits. It's more about the circumstances that the characters yes. are in that make yes. it funny. Okay. And I think that's one of the, the favorite things that I enjoy about comedy is not so much like – I love Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber is great. We've talked about this plenty of times in the show. But I get more comedy out of the way characters interact with one another and their different personalities clash. And the art of self-defense is a lot of that. More. Yes. And so in that sense, it really, really works. Um but also, like, you're not an Eisenberg fan, and I get it. Eisenberg does a lot of Eisenberg, you know, just, like, nervous man. And he's doing a lot of that in this movie, but it's it's toned down in a way and kind of playing into the way that we all feel about him that makes his performance a little more interesting to me. Um, where he is playing into, like, yeah, I'm 5'8", whatever, <laughs> and I'm I'm about as skinny as a as a bone, and I can't fight anyone. So now let's put him in a movie where he has to fight people. Um, Imogene Poots is really, really good at it too. Uh, Novala, who we've talked about, is just really good. This movie also is like one of the best endings I've seen in a long time, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, holy god, but like in terms of like, how do you end a movie in a way that your audience finishes it? And it's like, wow, <laughs> that was crazy. It has like one of those that is just perfect. Um, and if you want to like have like a nice, fun time with this movie, go and do it. But it's it's only an hour and thirty or forty four minutes. It's not going to demand too much of your time. It can demand a lot of your brain if you will let it. But it's not going to be like out and out like this is there will be blood or the master or you know insert ten other thousand movies apocalypse now. It's just a very simple movie about men feeling emasculated and how do they deal with that? You sold me. Now I'm going to go to the library and rent it. <laughs> yes, it's so it's so weird. Like it is just such a weird movie that like the realm that it exists in and like the world that exists in is like as i was watching i was like is murder legal in this world that we're in because it feels <laughs> like anything is possible here it's like one of those movies okay you sold me i'm gonna pull this one off the shelf next time i'm at the library good uh my next pick is a documentary well is it a documentary question mark ha <laughs> uh no my next pick is f for fake which is an Orson Welles mockumentary um, about a famous art forger. I watched this movie while I was house-sitting over the summer, and I haven't got it out of my head since. Um, I think we kind of get enamored with Welles' landmarks, landmarks of like narrative storytelling, like Citizen Kane or Touch of Evil, um, which rightfully so. But, like Whether it's this or the third man, I love the sense of deconstruction of form and genre with him. Uh, or what art is, really. That's what this movie is about. Like, What is art worth? You know, What do we give to art? It's a mockumentary slash film essay, as he called it, but it's more of a magic trick than a film to me, which is something that also goes into the film. Um, he totally follows through on his promise in the first five minutes to like kind of dazzle you and like all of this is like an illusion. 
Um, but what I got caught up in a lot is just this great sense of montage. Like, I, I, it was hypnotic almost. Like, you, there would be these great juxtapositions of these European cities and these classic buildings. And then you cut to this driving shot that could be on YouTube today that looks like downtown Denver from 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> so I really loved the juxtaposition of that. It kept me completely off balance, just like the way the film works. Really kind of like a hallucination at times. Um I don't know if this is a film that people are going to quote unquote like, and I don't think I still fully grasp it, but that's kind of what I enjoy about this exercise. Most of these films I just really quote unquote like, or I catch myself, you know, visually drawn to. Like, did I enjoy F for Fake, or, or was I kind of like hoodwinked and now I just want another crack at the puzzle to see if I can solve it? Um, I saw this on Criterion 2 disc at Twist and Shout. Shout out the boys over there <laughs> off of Colfax. And I had to fight the urge to just buy it right then and there. I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Like, this isn't one that a lot of people are going to see or probably want to see. It's the progenitor of things like This is Spinal Tap, The Office, I'm Still Here. You know, a lot of, like, um, Modern Family, single cam shows like that. And I always think it's important we talk about the building blocks before we break down the whole building. So you're calling this a documentary but not a documentary. Can you, like, explain what that means? Yeah, so... Again, it's about a famous art forger. I forget the name. Um, and a lot of the characters are in on the bit. You know, mm -hmm. they know that they're not, that, you know, it's, it's not really the art forger that they're looking at. Or it's not really, he, he throws in this elaborate storyline that involves a daughter that, you know, kind of leads to nowhere. And it's a navigating hallway that isn't true. Yeah. You know, so he really kind of inserts all these little elements of storytelling into what he thinks is a documentary. And I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, just like, again, the sense of montage, like there's a beautiful scene of like Orson Welles himself putting it together a film reel and just like the whole process of that. And like I, I could watch that on a loop. Um, this is a short flick. I think it's only like an hour and 26 minutes. But you really feel it's runtime in the sense like you're really engaged as any good documentary does with the material. But like then after I watched, I was like, oh, shit, like. I just completely got duped <laughs> which is like not a great feeling i guess but uh, now in retrospect uh, everything we know about orson Welles is a marvelous feeling what is this in his career because like he dies in, in 85 and this is what 70 74 73. 73 okay 73. so like is he making a lot of movies at this point because i'm not up to breast on like my orson Welles knowledge not as much um I'm not, you know, an Orson Welles expert by any right. A Welles, a Wellsologist. Yeah, um, but I, I think after Citizen Kane, things became quite difficult with William Randolph Hearst and the publishing baron he was. He made his life really difficult to make films and get funding for films. So he he's still making films at this point. I don't think he is as relevant. Um, and again, has just kind of become a caricature of himself. This big, portly kind of round-faced, bright red-cheeked director of the past he's got that yeah. great voice you know Hank, where are you you know he's got that really <laughs> kind of great thespian voice so i don't think he's still the maverick he once was but he is he was always somebody who was challenging film and challenging the format and challenging subject material um but it, it's great to me that people are like questioning the truthfulness of this movie you know mm -hmm. and, and and everything about it is a construct it's all artificial so it's just it's just a fascinating little relic there that like Really kind of blew my mind. I watched this late at night again, just how sitting by myself, had the windows open while the rain was coming down, and like I was entranced. Mm -hmm. He's such a fascinating guy that I think is getting more and more like attention for what he used to be. Because to your point, like I'm not a Wellsologist, if that's even the term, 
but it feels like now that we can go back and there's that separation from the controversies of the past and we can kind of escape the things that hindered his career a lot of people in like the modern film world are coming back to orson welles now to be like nah he was a huge innovator and like he really deserves more flowers than he probably got i totally agree um again somebody who's kind of probably blackballed towards the, the middle point of their career but just an ab i mean there's a reason all of his films still live on to this day and they're imitated and like guys we've talked about like William Friedkin went and watched Citizen Kane on a reel literally for 12 hours straight. So like <laughs> there, there's something there that we, we, we must like preserve, I guess in a way. Um, but I think I agree with you where it's like with that whole thing that came out on Netflix with this, he had a lot of unfinished projects too. Mm-hmm. So like the other side of the wind that like thing that came out on Netflix, I think really kind of gave his, it, again, it was a project of intrigue and mystery, and I think that's what's key to like really drawing some people into to Wells. Well, that's him as even going as back a to his radio place. Yeah, like yeah, that's Orson Wells is just a guy that like we'll never know enough about who he really was because he was such an iconic figure that had so little known about him. He really is a lot of Charles Foster Kane. You know, like the legend that is Charles Foster mm-hmm. Kane, where he's living alone in the giant manor, isn't exactly what Wells like life went, but he did become this like secluded, different guy with like the giant beard, like you're saying, and the like little pudgy body, and just like went off and did whatever he wanted. He was very eccentric towards the end. Totally. Okay. We're going to go from one documentary to another. We're going to talk about the last waltz, baby. This is another, mm. uh, another classic here. This is on the criterion. Like we talked about last week. So if, if you're looking for a, a good criterion to get, go do it. It, you know, features the band, which is, you know, one of the worst, but also best band names ever. <laughs> they tell a funny story and how they came up with the name. That's, Irrelevant to all this, but I just think it's funny where they're like, man, we were like the Hawks with Ronnie Hawkins, and then we were this and that, and then someone's like, ah, we're just the band. So we're the band, and that's the name they came up with. It's Robbie Robertson, it's Levon Helms, it's Richard Manuel, it's Rick Danko, and The Last Waltz is kind of about their last concert, for those who don't know. They were a band that had wrote like The Weight, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, The Shape I'm In. They were a really Canadian, like undercover 60s, 70s rock, folk, kind of everything band. Have you listened to much of the band? A little bit here and there. They're good. Like the Night They Drove Dixie Down. Like yeah, they're great. They're great, but like they were the best band. The band was the best band that no one talked about in the band world for just a lot of reasons. They were swallowed up by, you know, Dylan. The Beatles, The Doors, Rolling Stones, all that kind of stuff. And no offense to the band, but there's nothing sexy or dangerous about them. No. Right? They're just some really nice Canadian fellows who play some really soft rock and and good tunes. Whereas, you know, we're in a period where Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, it's like it's all about how bright can your colors be and how hot can you play that guitar? Yeah, and how much are you pushing the envelope of sound and scope and like appeal yeah and the band is just like like you're saying they're not really that if you go and watch the last waltz yeah robbie robertson and rick danko look pretty hot but they're not like they're not having the same sex appeal or the same charm i would say as as a mick jagger that's just not who they were or robert plant or robert plant yeah they were just like you would walk by robbie robertson and levon helm and all these guys on the street just be like oh those are some cool looking guys and then keep on walking they don't have like a star power to them the way that a lot of the other guys did um, and the conceit of The Last Waltz is essentially that they were going to disband in 1976 because they've been working together for, I think, 15 years at that point. And they've done a lot of records. They've done a lot of great songs and stuff like that they're all proud of. But eventually, there's a great quote at the end of the movie that's just like, 
15 years on the road is like a lot. Like it's just, it's just too much you can handle with the same group of guys for 15 years. So we have to stop, you know, we all love each other still. It's not like this is a bad breakup, but it takes your toll, <laughs> you know? Uh, but before they disbanded, they decided they would do like one last mega concert with all of their friends as like a fond farewell to their career and like rock before a hole where they went to become like solo musicians. And Scorsese heard about this and this is 1976 Scorsese. So he hasn't officially like broken out yet still. And he then goes and recruits like some of the best cinematographers in the world to then go and film this concert for the band and put together this two hour, like beautiful concert documentary. And a lot of documentaries are very dry and like, you know what documentaries are, but this one really, really like touched me. Um, there's something really beautiful about watching this movie and seeing all of these like A-list musicians that were everything the band was not. Uh, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, you know, these people that like iconic, iconic people. Eric Clapton comes on stage and they all come out there to just sing a couple of songs with their friends and then they're gone. And then the next A-lister comes out and they do the same thing. Like Ronnie Hawkins opens the show and they sing a couple songs and they're like, all right, well, Ronnie Hawkins. All right. Next guy, come on out and let's just have fun. And that's really the beautiful thing about this movie is that like in a cynical world, which we're in a lot of, you kind of look at this and go like, oh, that's just good press for these A-list stars. You know, like they're in a movie, a big movie that's going to be by Martin Scorsese, who's a director on the rise. It's free press. They're not really having to pay anything for it. They just show up and play their songs or whatever they want to do. Um, but there's not an ounce of that in The Last Waltz. Like, they are, they're all coming on stage to just sing songs they like with their friends. There's no, no underlying scheme. There's no motivation. And they just want to do what they all love, which is just sing songs in front of a crowd. And that makes them happy. And, like, there's such a beautiful tenderness to this movie, too, of, like, when Ronnie Hawkins is on stage, he's leaning over, he's singing next to Robbie Robertson. He's like kind of chiding him here and there. He's like, come on, Robbie, like show him what's up, Robbie. And like, there's just this beautiful camaraderie to this movie. Um, that like, it's just awesome. And like a rawness to it too, that doesn't feel like staged either. Like, I don't know if you definitely haven't seen it, but there's this beautiful scene where they sing the weight and it's not just the band. It's like a couple backing vocalists. Um, and there's a different person singing every different verse. And it's like a five-minute thing. It's gorgeous to listen to, first of all. And when it ends, one of the backing vocals just goes, beautiful. And, like, I, I don't know, like, how to, like, say this to, without, you know, like, stuff. But, like, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous to hear just people just, like, enjoy art and making the process of art. And, like, that sort of feeling is just ever-present in The Last Waltz is actually one of those movies where a lot of people put this highly on Scorsese's list of mm. filmography. Um, I personally haven't seen it. I think it's a blind spot that I definitely need to correct after hearing you talk about it and just seeing it all over the place. And unfortunately, with the recent passing of Robbie Robertson, it's yeah. definitely something that's kind of come back into the, the regular conversation topics on whatever Reddit boards you like to flip through of her film. Um, I guess my only thing that draws me back from it is... I just don't know a lot of the band's music, so yeah. I would feel at a loss. But I think what's great about that is we talked about what you just really hit on was a great point of like something that I've uh, is a great fear of mine, mm -hmm. and I think of everybody's is kind of getting left behind. Yeah. Right? Of like 
hey, we we influenced all these people or we've made all these great songs and we were just about the music. That's all we mm-hmm. were about. But, you know, we don't have the flashiness of an Eric Clapton or, a, you know, whoever. You you mentioned quite a few names. Like mm-hmm. Neil Young. So <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's it's really interesting to me how that happens. How, like, there's a lot of great music that just kind of gets swept up in the rush. And I think that that's a great reflection of film, too, mm-hmm. of, of just, like, what we're doing right now. Some of these movies people probably haven't heard of or even seen. Well, yeah. So, I, I to your point, there's a lot of people who are not going to know the band because they're just outside of the weight. No one really knows who the band is in today's society for a lot of different reasons. I wasn't a huge fan of the band. I just knew that, like, they played with Bob Dylan. I like Bob Dylan. Scorsese made this. I want to watch this. It sounds fun. It gets a lot of praise and stuff like that. Um, but if you don't come into it as a fan of the band, what you were essentially seeing is this group of guys that love each other and love making music and the art of it just coming together to celebrate and just like enjoy the feeling of this. And this movie also doesn't shy away from like, these are just guys, the same fears and inferior, like inferiority complexes that every artist has. There's this awesome moment where Rick Danko is taking Martin Scorsese around like his studio, his home studio. And Scorsese is like, wow, this is nice. You know, (laughs) this is cool. And then they sit down at the mixing table and Rick Danko's like, yeah, no, I like, I, I made something. I don't know if it's that good or whatever. And like, you know, I don't know how I feel about it. Cause like at this point, Rick Danko's just on his own. He's not longer has like the security of the band and the labels and stuff like that. He's really just working with a group of new musicians and doing his own thing. And he like nervously plays the song and you can watch Rick Danko like fidget with his body language and like his hat in his clothes and he's like a nervous schoolboy, like showing his teacher like this is what i made i hope you like it and there's something really just gorgeous about that because so many like rock documentaries especially in, in concert films are always about like man look at how cool this fucking band is aren't they the fucking coolest people or the grandiose of the performance yes the stage yes piece. yes yeah yeah and this movie does not really entertain a lot of that like yes the band looks great on stage and they go out of their way a lot to like do some awesome stuff. Um, but it's never to be like anything else, but like these are just guys who like making music and this means a lot to them. And they're finally saying goodbye to this career that meant so much to them. Um, and there's like some really cool behind the scenes stories you can read about, about like how Bob Dylan didn't want to be filmed. But then they were like, come on, Bob. <laughs> like Arnold Knight's fucking riding on you because Warner Brothers only finance it if they could get Bob Dylan to like come on stage and they could record it. And then Bob relents and does it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a dickhead move by Bob. I love the man, but Jesus. Um, And so that gets done. And then it culminates in one of the final scenes of the movie, which is everyone that was on stage at one point in the movie all gets on stage together. And they sing um, I Shall Be Released by Bob Dylan. And it's just gorgeous. Like They're like, yeah, Ringo's back there just hanging out like on stage with us. Just to flex, to be like, what? We know Ringo. He's just here, like playing the drums for this one song. And they all like do it. And there's no fanfare when the song ends. And the band is like, You guys are the best. You're the best fans in the world. This means so much to you. You just see Robert Robertson and like all of the five members of the band kind of just like, This is it. Like, we're done. This is the last thing we'll do together as a band. And Robert Robertson is just like, Thank you. Like, thank you. And just like walks off stage, and there's something. There's a moment that's making me sad hearing about it. Yes, right. It, like I'm not, I'm not like crying or anything, but like I'm hearing this. I'm like, oh man, I'm. I feel that in my heart a little bit. <laughs> yes, and and that's what really spoke to me about the last waltz more than anything, is that it's just that simple. And, and someone made a great point on Letterbox that really 
put this all together to me of like it's like a Thanksgiving for musicians of like they're not here to come for a present or a gift. They're just coming because they all love each other and they love their company and they can give the people that they love a farewell that will like give them what they're worth. Because the sad truth of this is that the band for as much of like the underground scene that they had was not going to get the tickets they would have gotten if Bob Dylan or Neil Young or Ronnie Hawkins or Ringo were not there for that show or Eric Clapton. But by getting all of their friends to participate, their friends are then giving the band this giant crowd that they otherwise might not have had for like this giant farewell to be like, hey, we love you guys. We're here for you. And like, there's just a really nice tenderness to that. So it's like some another one that I need to. It's great. And see. It's terrific. Go watch the last waltz. It's just it's really nice. It's it's like I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to watch the movies where you're just like, man, these pretentious motherfuckers and like art. <laughs> but like watching people who are just like, I'm nervous about what I'm making, and I I I love what I do. It's just like it's nice to see. Uh, my next one, I really don't have a lot to say about because I feel like it's kind of exhausted, but. I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox for the first time mm. this year, and I think it's my favorite Wes Anderson film. The handmade, intrinsic Whoa. level of detail everything in this film takes on is immaculate. Like, it's cute, but it's hilarious and heartwarming. All the telltale signs that Anderson is working on you right there, right? Like, I love the part in the in the lawyer's office with Bill Murray and he's and George Clooney going back and forth where he's like, are you cussing me? Like, I've just been saying that in my head a bunch instead of saying, are you fucking me? Um... Like, not a ton to say about this movie that probably hasn't been brought up before. It's just a delightful movie, and I'm really happy that I finally saw it this year. Um, it, it has some great, amazing voice performances by Bill Murray, like I said, George Clooney, Meryl Streep, uh, Jason Schwartz. I think even Wes Anderson himself pops up in this. Um, but it's just a really great movie, and yeah, it kind of, like, um, warms my heart a little bit. I, I enjoy um, that we're, we're both doing two things that are just like, this feels nice, like... Yeah, and like, and I could like, could I elaborate on Fantastic Mr. Fox and its, you know, musings on family and you know the people you choose to bring into your life? Sure, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna waste my time on that because that's not what I got out of the movie. What I got out of the movie was this is an amazing piece of art. Or everything is if you haven't seen it, it's all handmade stop motion yeah. animation, and it's just immaculate. The level of detail, just like Wes Anderson puts into all of his films, but to be able to do that on that scale and how time consuming and how much we know stop animation is a labor of love, blew me away. Uh, it's my favorite movie of his that I've ever seen. I'm, not, I'm gonna go ahead and say it, I'm gonna call it. So, so do you like Wes Anderson in general? Because I know he's kind of uh, uh, debatable, like he, people come and go with Wes, he's very divisive. Um, yeah i'm convincing <laughs> this is what i'll say i think from a visual sense he always gets me like i'm always like oh nice i love the symmetry i love the colors i love the um 16 millimeter the old push fin film looks that he does uh, the, the the subject material and some of the characters sometimes are just too new york times straight out of an article quirky for me to like really attach and love mm -hmm. um yeah. So I think I kind of agree with you. I think Wes is at his best in a case like Fantastic Mr. Fox or something like, um, God damn it, what's the movie they just released? I can't believe I'm blanking. Um, Asteroid City. Asteroid City. Something that is really simple and like kind of sticks to an idea of that like we can all kind of get. Like Fantastic Mr. Fox is just adapting a book. 
And, you know, Asteroid City is just like, these people are stuck in a town. And what kind of happens when you're stuck in a town with this group of people and like the 60s idea of space race and stuff like that? That's where he works at his best to me. But some of his other movies that are much more weirder and out there, like The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, just don't work for me because they feel so like quirked up is the best way I can put it. It's it's too like, and I love this genre, and I always bring this genre of writing up. It's like I feel like he's just trying to be a postmodernist too much mm. sometimes, and like whether it's that or the Royal Tenenbaums, it just like neither of those movies really are something that I want to like continuously return to. I know a lot of people love that and Rushmore. I think Rushmore is the first one for me that I'm like, this, this was like really really good. I want to see this multiple times. Yeah, it's it's weird for me. It's it's much. His hit ratio does not always work for me, but I'm always intrigued by whatever project he's putting out, and, I'm, and I most often will go and see it. I mean, he's on a really cool run too right now. He's got like Asteroid City this year. He's got the Life of Henry like Show. Yeah, he's working like crazy. So if you like Wes Anderson, you know, more cracks to the apple for you. True. My next movie um, is Come On, Come On. This is written directed by Mike Mills. Walking Phoenix, Woody Norman, Gabby Hoffman, Scooty Boots McNary, uh, like self defense. Come on, come on, is like a movie that not all people have like kind of watched, but it's been on my radar for a while. I'm a big, you know, Walking Phoenix fan. Um, and I, I remember watching this trailer, it's a black and white movie, and the, the trailer was so simple of just like these images and like the narration, but not revealing anything that I was like, oh, this looks awesome. And then several years passed. <laughs> And I hadn't watched Come On, Come On. Uh, and I'd always liked Mike Mills' work, too. 21st Century Women, I, I really, really enjoy. And so when I saw this was his next movie, I believe I was really invested into it. And it wasn't until that I saw this was on YouTube for free with ads. But, you know, if you get ad blocker, you don't need ads. So you just watch the whole movie for free. Um, so when I saw it was there, I was like, look, it's screaming out to me at this point that it's on like my, my homepage on YouTube. So let's just watch Come On, Come On. And I am I am so fucking glad I did. This movie is just beautiful. It's about this uncle played by Walking Phoenix who takes care of his nephew, uh, Woody Norman, for a few weeks while the nephew's parents kind of go through some of their own problems. Scooty Boots McNary is having like a mental health crisis, and Gabby Hoffman is like, I have to take care of him because you know he's my husband and I love him, and he's the father of my son, and I want to make sure he's okay so my son's life isn't changed because his father's not well. Um, and so Phoenix then takes care of the kid and it's just awesome. Like he takes the kid through like the, cr the country, they go to New York as Phoenix is playing a radio journalist. And the plot of the film is just like that simple. It's, it's Phoenix and the kid going around having these adventures and learning about their, each other. Cause they're not super close when the movie starts. They're kind of strangers to one another. So it's about watching this bond form over this like near two hours and Mike Mills just writes such a gorgeous script that like never lets you out. Like sometimes when I'm watching a movie at home, there's a temptation to go to your phone or the temptation to be like, oh, what's what's on YouTube real quick? What's going on there? And like looking for a distraction at times. But like, come on, come on, never really did that to me. I was in the whole time. You know what's weird? I think we probably both have saw it when we saw the trailer. We were like, oh, this is going to get nominated for everything. Yeah. And it, it came out in November. Perfect time period, shot by an established director, one of the best stars that we have in the game right now. Um, solid supporting cast. 
and it really felt like it came and went. I don't remember yeah. it getting a lot of buzz. I don't remember a lot of praise. I know a lot of people enjoyed it and loved it, it you know, critically. It just wasn't really at the forefront of a lot of people's movies that I, I hear them talk about from that year. Well, it's 2021. So this is the weird thing with Come On, Come On, is that it's in sure. that weird place where a lot of the movies that were postponed due to COVID are now coming out. And so you are going to get a lot of your big dramas kind of dominate the conversation. And then Come On, Come On, which is an A24 movie, is just kind of coming and going. And the audience that usually goes see a movie like this is not either comfortable going to theaters yet or there's just not a lot of theater space. You know, like this movie made $4.5 million against $8.3 million. So it, it lost money. It didn't make half of its budget back, really, um, which is a shame. And I think that's why it came and went. Um, but I this – look, go ahead. I, I, I'll just say this. Like Joaquin Phoenix – is one of the best actors working right now. I think we all agree with it. And this movie rises and falls with him. And he's terrific in Joker and the master and Bo and her, and you were never really here as like, man, I'm the fucked up socially awkward loner. Cause he plays that role in all of those movies. <laughs> His role in come on, come on is the best. I think he's been honestly, I think it's better than really? Joker because he's not being asked to do something that I've seen him do 10,000 times. Like he is great as Freddie Quell. Do not get me wrong. He's tremendous. But when we get to you were never really here, it's like I've seen this character. I've seen dysfunctional walking Phoenix be a guy that doesn't know how to talk to people and it's just like really nervous and anxious and like an animal, kind of like either in hibernation or just full fledged out there. But in come on, come on, he's just playing a guy. Like he's playing a guy that's like I have my anxieties and my worries, but I'm not like cripply <laughs> in social situations. Like I can talk to people and the way that Phoenix is, this is a hard role to for him is like, he's spending a primary, like a majority of his screen time with a child actor that he doesn't know. And he has to make that work for the whole movie. And it's probably the best chemistry I've seen between a child actor and a like megastar actor since DDL and W and there'll be blood. Like it, they, these two actors, Woody Norman and him, formed such a strong connection that, like, you were into their relationship from the jump. You know, like, you're just so invested into, like, what happens to these people? Do they make it out? And it doesn't, like, pull the same, like, lone wolf and cub thread that a lot of movies do, where, like, he's going to alienate the kid, the kid's going to hate him, and then he's going to have to get the kid back. And a lot of the contrived stuff that kind of happens with these sort of stories, it's just like, Hey, I'm gonna listen to this kid speak, and I'm gonna read him a book to bed, and we're gonna like sleep in the same bed because we're on the road. Or like he's so scared of like he doesn't want to sleep in a stranger's bed; he'd rather sleep anywhere he's comfortable and stuff like that. Like Phoenix is smiling and he's listening; he's invested, and like you can just see him like thinking while he listens to this kid, and it's just so nice and wholesome and good, and like it's so sadly atypical to his last decade of work. Am I gonna need a box of tissues for this one? You know, I have a heart of stone, Nick, and it almost made me cry. Um, so, oh <laughs> so you will probably need some tissues for this movie. Um, <laughs> there's such a beautiful simplicity to this movie when it ends, where you just go like, "Wow, that was that was really beautiful," and then you kind of get a melancholy because there's this question that Woody Norman's character asks that really almost breaks you at the end. For in my case, and I, I'll spoil it because it's not the biggest spoiler; it's not a plot thing is that it's a flashback where Woody Norman's character, who we'll talk about more in a second, asks Joaquin Phoenix, like, am I going to remember any of this? Because he's a nine-year-old kid. And, like, mm. 
eventually I'm going to have more memories. And as awesome as time has been with you, you know, Joaquin, I, I can't tell you that I'm going to remember this forever. And Joaquin is like, well, I'll remember it for you. And if you forget, I'll remind you. And there's something just like, jeez, oh, <laughs> making my hair stand up already. It's just, it's gorgeous. And it then makes me, the thing that got me about that line is just like, how many awesome moments with my family have I forgotten that I can't get back? And that like, maybe someone has forgotten to remind me of, or I just like, don't have that experience or something like that. And that's when it really, really hit me. And I, I think there's something beautiful about what Woody Norman brings to this movie is that like he's fun and he's light at times and then he's sour and brittle at other times. Like he's perfectly encapsulated the tenderness of like a nine-year-old boy feels or like the world is this place of awe that he wants to like venture into and whose limits he wants to kind of test. But then if someone raises their voice at him, he's going to cry or he's going to withdraw. And he's just like deeply sensitively fun that needs to also be nurtured and know that he's loved. And so many child roles in movies, I feel, in the wrong hands can go wrong for a lot of reasons. And some of it's just like, no kid would ever fucking say that. Like, come on. <laughs> the kid has all the answers. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And there's some of that with his character in this movie because he is playing an eccentric kid. But he's also playing a nine-year-old that is like, my feelings are all over the place. And I don't know how to think about things. And like, I want to be told that I'm okay and that I'm loved. And the craziest part about his performance is that he's a fucking British kid who at 11 has perfected an American accent. It's insane. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it, it's a terrific performance. And to kind of close this off, this isn't a Hollywood classic. Uh, it'll probably come and go for the vast part of like history, but this movie just deeply moved me. You know, it's on a short list of the movies that almost made me cry. Like we talked about, um, and I guess the last question I have is like, why are why are we also touched about movies or shows where it's like an adult form relationship with a child? Like The Last of Us, The Mandalorian, come on, come on, the creators down the list. Like there's so many movies about sure. like <laughs> Well, I mean, I think I think there's two things. One, I think from a, a Hollywood executive standpoint, I think it's very exploitive. Mm-hmm. And it'll really play well for our emotions. Yeah. Um, but on a on a more human level, I think it's what we're trying to get back to and it's what we're trying mm. to capture, right? So there's really this great juxtaposition of like the Joaquin character who, you know, you and I probably would identify more closely with as an audience member, but there's also this still close enough attachment to your youth where you can almost feel it, you can almost grasp it, but it's just a little bit out of your reach and the memories are a little bit foggy mm-hmm. um, that I think is just an emotion that we can all relate to. Or yeah. even I have great memories that I have, I have fond memories of like, you know, it's like, hey, I remember the time my friends and I like played tackle football and like ate ham afterwards. Right? There's nothing, <laughs> nothing amazing about that, but that's a memory I hold on to and love just because it's there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Go watch. Come on. Come on. You'll be a puddle. Uh, my next pick is It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. This is a 1963 road movie. Um, it was recommended to me by Katie's dad, actually. Ooh. He felt that when he saw Babylon, this movie kind of came to his mind. He was like, this movie reminded me a lot of it. So I was like, oh, well, I've, I've heard of this, but I've never seen it. I might as well watch it. They truly just do not make movies like this anymore. And I know we say this all the time on the podcast and it's a belabored point, but it's just the truth. Like, I would have loved to have seen this in theaters in like glorious, sweeping, epic 70 millimeter in 1963, at a dusty old movie theater with the red curtains and, you know, those plush seats mm. and those fancy carpets with the twills on the end, the gold twills. You know, there was probably an intermission where people smoke cigarettes and drink coffee in the lobby. It's just like my kind of America, you know? I don't know what that says about you. 
<laughs> but this movie is absolutely awesome. Um, it's a fun romp for its entire three-hour-plus runtime. Um, it has one of my favorite jokes where a character literally kicks a bucket um, or the fella trying to cross the river in his car. It's a great artifact, like I said, of a Hollywood that is no more. But I also think this is one that's kind of ripe for a remake. You know, it's got a lot of eccentric characters, a large cast. It's a it's a cross-country romp that, you know, divulges into a lot of ridiculous circumstances. So I think it would either make a great, like, you know, 10 miniseries, episode miniseries, or a really good, you know, remake. I think it's definitely ripe that um but i guess I, the other thing too is it's made by kramer stanley kramer who we've talked about who's more known for his quote-unquote serious films this was kind of a departure for him um but it's just a, still a really vibrant movie and still is social commentary that lives on mm. you know greed lengths one will go to get what they want people from different backgrounds having to come together to reach a common goal um, it's also on the Criterion Collection on a Mammoth 3 or 2 disc collection, depending on your format, so I suggest you check it out there. Um, a lot of great talent in this movie from like the old Hollywood days, where probably not as many people that we talk about now, or people who listen to the cast know, but you know, there's still some some all-time talent, like Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, Mickey Rooney, um, all these names that people probably have heard in passing about Hollywood legends, but haven't really gone back and seen their filmography. Highly recommend this one. Just a really fun movie, a good time. I mean, we've heard about Uncle Milty something else, you know, not just the filmography that we've talked about. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> so is this a comedy straight up, do you think, or, or is this more of a dramedy? This is a straight up comedy. Um, it's got a really good, it has, and this isn't really much of a spoiler because this came out in 1963, um, but there's a great line where one of the characters says, well, it was a nice dream for five minutes. And that line has really stuck with me for the rest of the year, especially where we're at as a country um, and the way we look at greed and things that we're entitled to a lot of the ongoing strike right now. So there was a lot of like things that really kind of stuck out to me in that regards, but it, it gets pretty poignant at the end. You do all the jokes are great fun. All the gags work really well. They don't feel aged. They don't feel, you know, hokey, but there is a heart at the center. And just like any great Kramer film, there is something being said. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. How did Rob feel about Babylon, though? I'm curious. Uh, I didn't really get much of a review. It was more just this movie, kind of like in comparison to that, right? Okay, um, but just, I, I think you should watch this just because something about 70 millimeter and when it's done right, it just that huge, wide, anamorphic expanse of, of land. And it really does a good job with this because it's a road movie. So you feel the distance, you feel the tr the trials and tribulations that they're going through because it's shot so wide. Um, so I really like that too. Just the cinematography alone is worth a view. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Is this one of the most like defining impacting road trip movies? Do you think that's what spawns the whole genre? Cause I, I don't think there's much prior to that. Yeah. I looked it up actually. Cause I was on movie. Um, check out movie too. Great streaming service. They also have a lot of great articles kind of like criterion on films and mm -hmm. different areas of film. Um, it was like one or two on everybody's list for road movies that I was clicking on. So it has to be, you know, one of the one of the earliest ones, if not the first. Well, it's 63. So I, I don't think the whole like genre idea really had much more appeal because who has the ambition and desire to go all the way around America to shoot something, you know, like they're all doing it on sets right. and stuff by that point for the most part, because that's even pre French New Wave, which is when, you know, naturalism and just like doing it anywhere is, is really common. Yeah. And the other thing too is like, 
think about how difficult this probably was to make back then with huge <laughs> bulking cameras loading up those 70 millimeter mags and going out in those blistering desert heat and all that stuff it really is dedicated to that but also it's got some great screwball comedy in it you know you're gonna laugh you're gonna have a good time while you watch this movie you know you're not gonna need a box of tissues like come on come on all right we're gonna we're gonna have some fun here all of my movies are like wholesome, sad, like affairs, and you're just like, fucking, they kick a bucket. <laughs> well, we're about to take a stark turn with my next two. Don't you worry. <laughs> okay. um, my last one, because I'm down to my last one, is um, Kelly Reichardt showing up. This is with Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, John Magaro, Judd Hurst, Andre 3000 in a supporting role. Pretty cool. Uh, I'm a huge Michelle Williams fan. I think she is one of the best actresses working right now and probably one of my favorites. Um, so kind of same deal as Come On, Come On. When I saw the trailer, I was like, all right, Michelle Williams in a movie about like a struggling artist. I'm in. Let's go. Um, and the star power is just like off the charts of Hong Chao is finally like cresting now her star power. John Magara is like your A24 darling that no one really uses otherwise. Judd Hirsch, just Judd Hirsch, you know. It's like putting all of your favorite underappreciated actors together in one movie. Just being like, here it is. And what really struck me about showing up aside from its cast is like writer director Kelly Reichardt, like it's such a great, slow, meditative script that kind of like revs this dog up. Cause I don't know, I don't need a lot to get me going in a movie. Like I've been chastised by my friends many times for watching movies where nothing happens. Which is come on, come on, showing up, licorice pizza, any other movie, the lovely confused, <laughs> Daisy confused. Probably everybody wants something they wouldn't like. Um, and this movie really has a lot of that, where it's just about like, hey, she's prepping for this art show, and so she's got to make her clay pieces, she's got to put them in the kiln, she's got to paint them, and then Hong Chao drops off this bird and is like, watch this bird, and Michelle Williams is like, all right, and that's the movie. <laughs> And a lot of people love this. I think it premiered at Sundance, right? Yes, yes. This is a big yeah. like indie movie that you know didn't really get a lot of buzz past that. But I, I do remember it being like, hey, check out this movie. Um, yeah. Because Kelly Reichardt, for those who don't know, has done a lot of like movies that like no one really talks about. She's a really respected director that doesn't do a lot much out of what she wants to do, and that's one of the biggest things I respect about about showing up in her line of work in general is that she's not going to make anything else unless it's something that she has a strong feeling about and that she can give a steady hand to. Like, she knows what she wants to write and capture. She's not going to deviate. And even if it's something that she makes that's going to be appealing to, like, a small minority of viewers, that's what she wants. And maybe that sounds a little highfalutin, and maybe it sounds like I have a stick up my ass. Um, but, like, that's what she is. That's what she like. She came out and was like, yeah, I don't know about this Oppenheimer Barbenheimer thing. That's a little weird. And I think it's going to like do something. And I was like, Hey, that's a, that's a take. Cool. Cool. Good for you. Like she really has a lot of conviction in everything she does. Um, so if you're going to watch showing up, you do have to be patient. Cause like, you got to learn to appreciate the little moments of this movie. Um, like one of the big plot points is like Michelle Williams shows up and John McGarrow, who's playing her brother is just digging a hole in his backyard. She's like, what are you doing? He's like, ah, I'm prepping an art piece by digging a hole in my, my backyard. She's like, okay, cool. But you know what I kind of like about that, though, is like that thread probably gets teased early on in the movie, and maybe it does have some culmination. It comes to a, a head that actually means something. It does. It does. And that's the what I mean is like it's these little plot lines of like significance of the bird that she mm -hmm. has to watch or her cat that she has to feed 
or the arch of the she's prepping are like, oh no, the kiln was too hot on these clay things, and now they look weird. Um, but the, the bigger part about this movie is that like it's a very interesting exploration of ambition and how you could kind of let go of ambition and kind of emphasize something that I think a lot of our audience might relate to is like finding contentment in the art you create for yourself and not the art you create for other people. Because like, look, a lot of us, I think me and you included, would love to be the next David Fincher or Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino. But when those dreams become deferred, are you allowing yourself to become comfortable with who you are and what you make? Like can a small art show in Oregon, which is where this movie is set, that's reserved most for friends and family satisfy you? Like, can you learn in time to find that that is enough of like your artistic expression? And I think that's a question I kind of entertain myself as I've gotten older of like more and more of my scripts exist only on my hard drives <laughs> rather than being made and turned into something. And can I, like a lot of the characters in this movie, find contentment and happiness in that to be like, Hey, you've read a script and you liked it. And that's enough for me at that point. And I don't know. Kelly Reichardt really made me think and feel like the uncomfortable but kind of humorous things that inevitably happen to aspiring artists. Um, and also, like, there's a deeper melancholiness of, like, Michelle Williams is obviously an older woman. And how do you have those feelings when you're that age? And um, it's just really, really good. Like, for a movie about pottery that I never would have thought I'd, I'd connect to, pretty good. Pretty good job. I think the other key piece there, too, in that conversation, it's not just, like, can you be, like, content but can you have gratitude for that? Yes. Right? Can you be grateful that, you know, hey, maybe I didn't get that art gala in Los Angeles, but, you know, uh, people care about my work and people are coming to see it. And mm. can you be grateful for that? Is that enough? Right. Especially against the backdrop of, like, jealousy of, like, your contemporaries. Like, the Hong Chao character is a much more successful mm. artist that kind of came up with Michelle Williams. And their roommates are, I think they share, like, a, an apartment together or whatever. And it's that question of like, how do you look at your contemporary who's having much more success than you compared to you? Can you find success in what you have and what you have is good enough for you? Right. That's good. Oh, good Josh, I'm not going to lie. All four of your films, I mean, I've seen Days and Confused, but mm-hmm. uh, the other three, I'm like, I would watch them all right now. I've pitched them well enough that I would go and see them. What can I say? I mean, likewise, I'll probably go watch a Mad Mad World or the Orson Welles Efforts for Fake or something like that soon. But you have two more? I have two more. I can cut one if you'd like. But no, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, my next one is Shortcuts, a 1993 Robert Altman film. Uh, Altman is just the master of intersectionality. All these little stories of L.A. This is based on uh, four or actually eight short stories by Raymond Carver. Instead of taking one story, he actually wove all eight together. They're not related, but Robert Altman and Raymond Carver wove them together together. Um, it creates this beautiful and tragic tapestry about humanity, all so much closer than we seem that was the big thing that i drew from this movie but like there's a classic such as altman's ability to blend sounds of different conversations we talked about that on mccabe and miss miller go listen to that episode the expansive wide shots that flow and prowl through a setting undisturbed there's this great shot where um matthew modine and julian moore have this other couple over their house is portrayed by fred ward and i the actress name it's eluding me um and it just pushes in on the countertop and then pans to the right and it's the whole entire scene it's like oh he even before the player he knew how to do this like yeah. better than anyone else <laughs> um it just at 70 years old like it just feels like he's kind of flexing at this point but there's great performances in here he gets out of non-actors and musicians like tom waits and huey lewis i've seen a lot of tom waits performances in jim jarmusch's movies um or other pieces that he's been in and i think this is the best performance i've seen by him any of this movie is really violent and jarring though and i really didn't think that that was what we were building towards 
So that kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah, like I said, the fact he was doing this at 70 and taking these big risks feels like he's just kind of flexing. Uh, you don't get Magnolia or PTA on the whole without Allman. Um, the cast in this film, like, my goodness, young Robert Downey Jr., Jennifer Jason Lee, Chris Penn, Lily Tomlin Ann Taylor, Tim Robbins, Julianne Moore, Matthew Modine. Francis I mean, McDormand. Deli- <laughs> Francis McDormand. Jack Lemon delivers what has to be a four-page monologue on mistakes in fatherhood and showing up that just absolutely wrecked me. He's in it for like five minutes and then he's gone. And it's just, he tore my heart out. And like, who knew ketchup could be a significant, like, like staple for American uniformality, <laughs> you know? Uh, again, this one is in the Criterion Collection as well with some great supplements. So check that out if you want. Um, this really shot up the list. Probably my top five. Robert Altman, although I've been watching a lot of his films I just haven't gotten around to, like this or Gosford Park. Um, but this one really stuck out with me, and, and I really – I think I'm I'm prone to being swept up by films that are three hours and feature large casts. Yeah, That's are. really kind of my bag. I really kind of like <laughs> – I have a really weak spot for that, and it doesn't even have to be a great movie to for me to be attracted to that kind of premise. But this one really delivers the goods and really – hits on all its promises and tim robbins my god playing one of the biggest assholes of all time um which is not really the tim robbins turn that i think we're always used to so it was really cool to see him in that role as well you have been hounding me to watch this um since you saw it i believe i got a text where you're like listen man you gotta fucking watch shortcuts right now and if you don't watch it if you don't watch it tonight i'm gonna end you fucking sneak your house So I immediately added it to my letterbox, like, have to watch this now. So it's going to be done, Nick. I just want to assure you while we're on the topic, like, don't have to harm or threaten me. I will watch shortcuts. Uh. <laughs> it's it's it, This is what I love about the movie, too, where because it's a big sweeping L.A. story. Same thing as kind of Magnolia, which is a PTA film that I really love and adore. Same kind of thing. Magnolia is pretty sad and depressing at times, and you can feel the weight of it, and it bogs down at times. Shortcuts is moving and grooving for all three hour plus mm-hmm. runtime. We're not you don't feel stuck in any of the storylines. Nothing really kind of the ball never gets dropped as far as details. There's all these little tiny little metaphorical things that wind up connecting to the plot as a whole. The only thing that again threw me for a loop is kind of the ending is a little violent and jarring and doesn't feel like you're building towards that. But that might just be me because I've only seen it once. I need to go back and rewatch it. Mm-hmm. You love, you do love your sprawling movies that are like sagas. I do. You just, you, you got a type, man. <laughs> hey, I like sprawling sagas and Salma Hayek. I'm a, I'm a very simple man. Uh, moving on to my final film. My final film for Discoveries of the Year is Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. What does it say about me that back to back weeks I have a Nick Cage film on my list? It says a lot. <laughs> Uh, Werner Herzog claims that this film has no relation to the first other than its title, which pissed off Abel Ferreira, director of OG Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Um, let's just cut the cake. This is a good bad movie, right? It's completely over the top. Never thought I'd see a scene that involved hand cams of what can only be described as soundtracks set to lizard close-up. That's Werner Herzog for you. Um, there's actually a lot brewing under the surface if you let it win you over. There's some amazing camera work from uh, Herzog's regular cinematographer, Peter Zettliger. A very European camera. It really allows the scenes to flow openly through doorways, an interrogation room, an alleyway. 
Um, the camera is more journeying wanderer that the characters move around and toward than the inverse, which I really found interesting because I also watched State of Grace, a 1990 film with uh, Gary Oldman and Sean Penn recently. And I kind of noticed some of the same things. I looked it up and it was a European director. Um, so that really kind of stuck out to me. It's beautifully shot. Um, he really allows the actors to go wild in this, a la the crack scene or anything Nick Cage is doing. There's actually one of the best Ava Mendes performances in here, though, that you're just rooting for the whole way through. You're like, I just want her to get better and get away from this parasite that is Nick Cage's character. You know, you really want her to pull through. And she really sells the performance of, like, being an addict and trying to quit and, like, moving past that. Also, really good Val Kilmer in here, too. It's really, it's anchored around the head-exploding performance that is Nick Cage. All we noted is Simmer in the second half of Snake Eyes last week. This turn is just all gasoline and sizzle. Crank to 11. I'm so fucking here for it. Oversized gun in the waistcoat. The ability to convince me that he is actually high on all of these drugs. The, the classic cageisms of like, what the fuck are these iguanas doing on my coffee table? Or I'll kill all of you to the break of dawn. To the break of dawn, baby. Uh, <laughs> it's just wild cage, you know, going, going a thousand miles per hour. But it's not brainless. There's some commentary on police corruption, drug addiction, and race relations. Again, this is all secondary to me. It's, it's very post-ironic elements of like zany plot, bad acting, ridiculous sex and drug use. Um, but Nicolas Cage to me is one of those actors just given the chance. I would give an arm and leg to work with. And this just kind of further reinforced that for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you've been on the Cage thing as much as you've been on the three-hour saga movie thing lately. <laughs> I've also gotten many texts but like, man, Nick Cage is great in this movie. Nick Cage is really good in this movie. You should really watch this Nick Cage movie. I did watch Snake Eye since we lasted an episode. Nick is right about some things about Nick Cage in the '90s. Just yeah. like pump it, he Snake Eyes just, fucking rocks. Snake Eyes goes pretty hard. I will not. I will not detest it. All right. It, it's just. It's good. Um, but God, I the Nick Cage comeback these last couple of years, and just like now being back in Hollywood, and just like the pop culture collectiveness of just like, man, he's awesome. He's great. It's awesome. It's really cool to see that like we've come all the way back around to Nick Cage. It's almost like Keanu Reeves in a sense, where it's like. Every five or ten years, he reinvents himself, where it's mm-hmm. like, I'm the guy who finds national treasure, but now I'm the guy who like plays in VOD westerns, but also is self-aware enough that I'm <laughs> going to be playing myself in a movie. I was no, just going to say that. It's a great career. He's doing a movie called, like, he's, well, I don't even know what it's called. It's like Buffalo Butcher Hunters. Something. Butchers, yeah, the <laughs> Buffalo Buffalo Butchers. When I sent you, and I was like, boy, this looks all over the place. Where, like, he's playing a Buffalo Hunter. And then the very next day, the trailer for Dream Scenario dropped. And I was like, oh, he might get an Oscar for that one. And that's just who Cage is. We're like, I can't tell if he's doing a movie because, like, he believes in it anymore. Or he's doing because it's a paycheck movie. And he, But either way, he's still, like, giving his all to all of them. Like, that's the crazy thing about him. He's not a guy who's, like... Well, show up never cashing the check. No, like he he may be cashing the check, but he's also going to earn too much. Yeah, like that's that's the thing about him. He's great. Yeah, there's a reason he's been in a lot of movies recently. Um, The thing to me too that I also love about Nick Cage is like he has great taste. While he's in a bunch of movies that were like, well, that movie kind of sucked, but you know, Nick Cage was in it, so I'll go watch it. He's also in like Dream Scenario or Adaptation or you know Snake Eyes. He really has a good eye for film. It's just, I think, um, he also likes to spend money. Yeah. <laughs> I think that sometimes catches up to you after a while. A man might have some debts, is all I could say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you buy a castle, surprise, surprise, it might be expensive. 
But I love this movie. Again, I'm not going to sit here on a pedestal and try and be like, let me give you some social commentary about Bad Lieutenant Port of Call of New Orleans. But if you like watching Nick Cage going balls to the walls, absolutely insane, check this movie out. Okay. Very good. Very good. I think we I think we gave a very well-rounded <laughs> group of suggestions to people. I think it's pretty demented that I have Fantastic Mr. Fox and this and there, but hey, like what you like. I mean, we're a demented show. I'll be honest with you. Our second episode was Texas Chainsaw, The Next Generation. That's where we started. We were like, hey, good fellas, Texas Chainsaw. I mean, this is what we've and always like, been. And it wasn't just one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw, we'll do that next. No, 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 no. It was orchestrated for months ahead of time yeah, that that yeah. would be the second movie we did. Yeah, we had about eight episodes of the can at that point. We could have dropped any of them. And yet I was like, no. Texas Chainsaw. That's the way it goes. Oh, we both like mutually agreed. We're like, yeah. we have to do this. <laughs> yep, that's right. So I think to say that your list is demented is saying that the water is blue. You know, like that's just the way it goes. Yes. But the other thing we have to do is get the hell out of here because we, we definitely overstayed our welcome. Probably. Guys, right, check out the Instagram road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Like, rate, subscribe, listen wherever you get your podcast. Road dogs out.